I'm actually going to dial you back to this teacher. I want to know a little bit more about this teacher. He was a substitute and he was famous. He was a mountain climber and he had gone on many expeditions. And that sounds pretty queer. You may have had a shot. Yeah. Well, no, no I've Googled him since. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is You Made Me Queer, the show where queer people end the hour by billing their therapist. That's right, that's the direction it would work. What, you bought tickets to Trolls the movie, you're not going to pay for my sweet entertainment? That's right, every, I wonder if my therapist listens to this. That's right, every episode I invite a fantastic 2S LGBTQIA+ guest to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. It's what we do every time. It's what we're doing again. And boy, oh boy, is this one going to be a sweet little peach. I'm going to jump into it because I have been waiting to release this one for a while. It has been in the You Made Me Queer slash Disney vault. And today she's coming out. So my guest today is Canadian icon... Ronnie Burkett. Oh my goodness. This was uh, a spectacular experience for me. I was truly honored uh, for Ronnie to take time from his very busy schedule to sit down and quite honestly descend into madness with me, which was my fault. Uh, Ronnie, you know, was incredibly gracious as I uh, slobbered into my microphone on a Zoom call. And uh, the gift at the end of that is yours, really. I hope you enjoy it. If you don't know Ronnie, you have something wrong with you. But I'll bridge the gap. So Ronnie Burkett is a Canadian puppeteer, best known for his original theatrical plays for adults, performed with marionettes. Is that ringing a bell? Ronnie Burkett, a little more info. Ronnie Burkett has had a puppetry fetish, my words, since the age of seven and began touring his shows around Alberta at the age of 14. He formed Ronnie Burkett Theatre of Marionettes in 1986. I was three and gorgeous at the time. Ronnie's shows have been playing continuously on major Canadian stages and numerous tours abroad. He is beloved understandably and rightly so throughout the world. Awards, you say, with a question mark? Many, is my answer. Ronnie received the 2009 Seminovich Prize in Theatre, the Herbert Whitaker Drama Bench Award for Outstanding Contribution to Canadian Theatre, I was runner-up, a Village Voice Obie Award, and four citations of excellence from the American Centre of the Union Internationale de la Marionette. Normally, citations are things we don't want or academic things we require, but in Ronnie's world... Uh, there are just more ways to show off. In 2019, Ronnie Burkett was appointed as an officer of the Order of Canada, and they do not just go handing that out. Uh, you know Ronnie's 
enormous theatrical canon, including Little Willie, Forget-Me-Not, Penny Plain, Billy Twinkle, these names are exceptional, Ten Days on Earth, Provenance, The Memory Dress Trilogy, The Daisy Theater, and the truly beloved Little Dickens. You, you cannot spell prolific without an R, and that R stands for Ronnie. So it all makes sense. Uh, this conversation is, I hope, a little bit of joy in a very difficult and hard time. There is really not a lot we can agree on right now uh, in so many capacities, but I think that art has had and will always have the power to cut through the noise and change minds and change lives. God knows it is something that uh, got me through my own most difficult times. And so I hope this conversation orbiting around the sweet moon of art will help get you through your day and your week and into some gentler times beyond. So sit down, mentally project the sexiest puppet you've ever seen, and enjoy my conversation with the only person who really should be called an officer of the Order of Canada, Ronnie Burkett. I'm here, I'm queer, and I'm old. Oh, and now oh my, my dog God. decided to start barking. <laughs> it's fine. I have a dog outside the door, too, who's chewing on a chew toy. He's he's very old now, and he has these little moments where he just rolls around and barks. So, What what breed? Uh, a Cairn Terrier. A Cairn Terrier? Like uh, Toto in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yes. I was like, Karen, because I know, you know, Karens are not the most popular archetype oh, no, no. in the world yeah. right now. Okay. Yeah, it's fashion Karen. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yes, Toto. That's a very queer pet. What kind do you have? I'm dog-sitting a mini schnauzer. Oh, okay, good. Great. Great little dog. Yes, he is three. He has the appearance of sort of like a mustachioed British, Victorian British gent but it's very small. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully this maroon will calm down. Okay. Well, you know what? If he, and if your dog really speaks up, maybe we get him on the podcast too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a horror. Yeah. Another episode. <laughs> That's right. So here we are. Uh, this is great. And also, is this your personal bookshelf? This is a section of my personal bookshelf. Behind me are 1600 books on puppetry. Oh my God. This is stunning. And that way are fashion and art books and, yeah, sculpture books. But, yeah, this is this is why young puppeteers come to visit me. This is how I lure them into my witch's cave. <laughs> this is a sanctuary. I mean, folks cannot see this, but I thought that Ronnie was in a public library. <laughs> it's beautiful, color-coordinated. So, of course, you know, you were known and renowned for puppetry. Are you also a bibliophile? Yeah, I have been since I was very young, just because, you know, I grew up in a time where the internet did not exist, and so <laughs> it was the public library, Yeah. and my gateway to puppetry, and everything actually, was the library. Uh, so I started, uh, at the age of seven, I bought my first puppet book, first little puppet book, and because I've been able to tour all these years, you know, there are old bookstores in many cities, so I could go into old bookstores and... And then it became an addiction. It just became a crazy <laughs> That's right. addiction. That's right. Every story starts so beautifully and quite romantic. And then you go over that hump at the top where it becomes compulsive. Yeah. And, you know, I'm at the age where I, I really am thinking you need to start divesting yourself of stuff, Ronnie. Get, don't, 
don't hoard more stuff. I don't really collect puppets anymore. I got rid of a lot of stuff I had of other people's They're work. pretty big, yeah. But there's a lot of new puppet books coming out, and I'm like, oh, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. So I know, yeah. and the ebook's not the same. It's just not. It is not. Um, and there is something so delightful to have it in the middle of my studio. I had another bibliophile, a very serious book collector, say you shouldn't have them in the middle of your studio and, and they shouldn't be close to the front windows where there's sunlight. And, oh. and I had a very old friend who had been the librarian of it, the Medicine Hat Public Library for a while. And he became a rare book dealer and would bring me things from London. And when he came to my studio, I, I apologized that all the books were right in the middle of the studio where there's dust and there's sanding, sunlight. And he said, do you use them? I said, we haul out five or six books a day. And yeah. I'll go, oh, I know that German hip joint. Let me show you. So-and-so has it in a book. And he said, well, if you love them and use them, that's the point. So uh, I'm a great believer in um, if you collect stuff, love it and share it. Yes, yeah, 100%. There's a utility there. And coincidentally, I read an article in The Guardian about hoarders this morning. And <laughs> I truly, I truly did. I was fascinated. It was very long. Um, but that is one of the sort of defining characteristics is that it's it's items that people don't use and they almost seem aware of the need to get rid of them and they can't. Yeah. And you are someone who is very much employing these books. So anyone who comes at you and says you have too many or you have to get rid of them, tell them to keep walking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's a pretty a benign thing to find happiness and joy in. And uh, I have discovered in the last couple of years that a lot of younger puppeteers who uh, historically are just Muppet mad, they, they don't know puppetry <laughs> before the Muppets. Sure. <laughs> they have started becoming book collectors, like the young assistant I have working a couple days a week in here mm. has his own puppet book collection from the last two years that's growing and growing. So I love that I've been kind of their gateway drug on this too, because you have to know where you come from, right? And, you know, everyone needs a pusher. And I think it's nice, too. It makes sense because puppetry, I mean, puppets are like the analog equivalent of, you know, folks who do digital animation or whatever now. Yeah. So it makes sense that people who love a puppet love a book. Yeah. There's such a push that everything has to be new and original. And because of the way I was trained, Trevor, I... I was taught nothing is original. It's just who thinks of it first. But that's not really the truth. Uh, a great line I was told when I was young by my main mentor was, style isn't something you set out to get. It's something you get when you set out. Ooh. So I was encouraged in a classical way to copy. Sculpt a head like this master. Sculpt a head like that master. Make that knee joint on a marionette like the British do. And over time, by learning a huge vocabulary, I was able to pick and choose which of those techniques worked for me. And I do remember the period where I finally looked at my work years ago and went, ah, that looks more like me than a copy of someone else. Yes. But that's life, right? And that's life. That's right. Because really, if, if you're being authentic, everything is a synthesis of what you think is best. And that's probably going to be different for everyone. So I'm going to jump on this because I think this is the perfect segue where you pick, you choose, you synthesize, you are synthesized. You go through life thinking that you are 
copying certain things, but you realize you've been manipulated into copying something else and you turn out a big queer monster, Ronnie. So that's why I invited you here today because obviously you get I'm a big queer monster. (laughs) I mean, here we are. And this is an awkward segue perhaps, Trevor, but it did come into my mind, this whole thing about young puppeteers wanting to finally learn more about Muppets because for many, many years, they didn't want to know anything before Jim Hansen, mm. uh, who I greatly admired. So I'm not I'm not slagging Jim Hansen or throwing shade on that. That would be an unpopular puppet, opinion. So, yes. Well, and I had also <laughs> done that kind of work for so many years myself as a television puppeteer. So sure. um, I, I'm not in a position to do that. But interestingly, you know, there was a period, I think maybe 15 years ago, where I was hearing and reading a lot of not a lot, but several vocal young queers saying basically, all right, old guys who live through age, shut up. We've heard about that enough. And we don't really want to hear all these sad stories all the time. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's that's a terrible thing to happen to the community. But what I've learned in the last few years is young queer men who are actors or puppeteers are asking me to tell them about those days. And I think it's because their current politic is as scary as ours was during those horrible days. And they want to know how you survive that kind of queer life. 100%. I think think you're right. And there was a naivete that sort of, you know, the liberation was a a past tense phenomenon. And we see Mm -hmm. it's impossible to ignore what's happening now. And hopefully everyone realizes how much we have to learn. You know, we have so few queer mentors left from that era from AIDS because of you know the devastation of it so god i hope people are looking we're so lucky to have any past generation yeah and i i do i do believe there um i have certainly noticed it for myself just in my field that there's a a beautiful intergenerational conversation happening Mm. and i feel nothing but a great deal of affection from young puppeteers now And a lot of them just hang out here willingly and keep in touch with me. And so I'm happy for that to be occurring in my life because I don't really know how they can have a career. Yeah. A lot of them say, how can I have your career? And I say, honey, I can't have my career anymore. (laughs) I have to, you know, when the pandemic happened, Trevor, and two and a half years of work ended. Yeah. I thought, oh, God, now I have to start from scratch again. Now I have to rethink this again, and I have to rethink what it'll be like when we open up again. Mm. And I was pretty mad at that until I realized that is the entire purpose of art slash life that you constantly reinvent. And you constantly force yourself to not go by route and do a new vision of something. Force yourself to look at the world. And for me, being connected with young theater makers and young puppeteers and young queer people has challenged me to grow in ways that maybe five, 10 years ago, I would have poo-pooed or not been interested in. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, you know, like you said, that can be a daunting task, but you sit down, you have a glass of water, you eat some protein and you just give it a go. I mean, that what an opportunity to, even you, you know, someone who's established yourself and is well regarded for something you do there's always an opportunity to discover something new yeah there really is and i love the conversations because you know when black lives matter happened at the pride parade here in toronto what was that seven eight years ago oh, I mean, gosh. It was longer that sounds right but when it happened i had a knee-jerk old white man reaction to it i will admit but then i decided that my job as an old white man 
was to listen. Yeah. And yeah. my technical director at the time is a, a a black Canadian woman, and I invited her for dinner one night, and just you know, I said, "What was it like growing up in Toronto for you?" And she, for two three hours, told what it was like growing up as a black woman in Toronto, and I went, "Okay, I absolutely know nothing." Hmm. And so I started listening. I, at one point I had five women working in the studio. Someone was making shoes and Kim, my costumer was patterning stuff. And uh, a few other people were here and someone came in very frustrated saying, oh, some jerk was hassling me on the streetcar. And I said, does that happen regularly? And every one of those women of different ages, of different types, put down their work and started talking. And for four hours, they shared stories with each other that I listened to of what it's like to be a woman passing through an urban environment or in this world. And that has made me a better writer and performer and creator of character because I create character. Yeah. And so rather than stock characters that I might have used in the past, I have non-binary and trans puppeteers talking to me about their journey. I'm watching them go through their transitions while working in puppetry. Yeah. And so I now have access to their voice, if that makes sense. It's not mine to appropriate, but I have permission to access it to create a more authentic character. Yeah, right. And I that's interesting because I think as you find your own voice, big air quotes around that, yeah. you have a story you feel like you can stick to and then what often happens or sometimes you're encouraged to do is stop listening or you feel less of a need to listen whereas when you have this student mind you're pulling resource from from everywhere and stories from everywhere so i think the great one of the great discoveries as you find out who you are and what you want to say is that you don't have to stop being a student of life as cliche as that sound but there's always something to learn yeah always and yeah when the mentor becomes not the mentee but part of the circle, you know, in that really beautiful sense that some people are actually understanding now is the only way to connect our communities is to literally become part of a circle. And not everyone needs to be dad or mansplainer or know-it-all. Yeah. So that's going back to the books. That's why when a young puppeteer will come in here and say, I want to do vietnamese water puppets with a polish rod control from the 50s and i'll go well i don't do that but i have polish magazines from puppet institutes in the 50s and i have books on vietnamese water puppets so let's haul those out and look you know so i don't know everything yeah but i can access a lot which is so great and i also feel like polish rod control was a party i went to at the gladstone hotel in the <laughs> early 2000s i may have See, seen you there you no, I went to the Russian rod control party because oh, I preferred yeah. the Russian. Yeah. yeah, we all have our preferences, right? But this is going to get me back on the prompt because God knows I could t obviously talk to you about anything. But I have to pull you into the conceit of the show, which is, Ronnie, you got to tell me who and or what made you queer. Well, you know, there's an old joke, Trevor. It's like from long ago that said, you know, my mother made me a homosexual. And the reply is, well, if I give her the wool, will she make me one too? So there, I had to get that old joke off my chest. Well, I've been thinking about this. And and I don't know if anyone made me. I think I came out of the box ready to go. Oh, yes. And I, 
I, I mean, I, I can tell you a few funny stories. I mean, when my, I'm adopted. And so mm -hmm. I was the second child my parents adopted and they had put in an application. And my mother got a call one day around noon from the agency saying, well, we have a baby for you. And she went, wonderful. And they said, yes, it's a little boy. And she said, oh, I don't think so. We wanted a girl. And she hung up on them. Oh, so my father came home. My father came home for lunch, like dads apparently used to do. And she told him, he went, are you crazy? We'll take it. And so he phoned and managed to get them. And they said, oh, it's lunch break. So we didn't phone anyone else. So yeah, you can have this baby boy. And when I found out that story, it became the joke for a long time where I, you know, would wink at my mother and go, careful what you wish for, you know, <laughs> and, and that used to terrify her. I bet. Um, I think, you know, I don't think puppetry made me queer, but I certainly think puppetry was this either angel or demon that appeared to me at the age of seven and went, here's a way to do it. Here's a way. And was it through that first book? It was through the World Book Encyclopedia. And yes. I was, I, I've told this story so many times, I was bothering my mother one day at lunch. Uh, they had done the right thing and bought on subscription a series of encyclopedia and she said, go look at the books while I'm making lunch. And I sat on the floor and grabbed the P volume randomly. I, and it fell open to <laughs> Who puppetry. knows what you could have been looking for there, Ronnie? <laughs> the family joke was it could have been podiatrist or plumber yes. or yes. pediatrician. But no, it fell open to puppetry. Uh -huh. Two-page spread. There was a picture of a man named Bill Baird and his uh -huh. wife surrounded by all these puppets. And I read the article and stared at that picture. And my mother called me for lunch. And I closed the book and thought, well, there, that's what I'll do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Here's my vocation at seven. Wow. What it did was it, I instantly knew here's something for a loner child to do where I could make stuff. I could tell stories. I could talk in funny voices. Mm. And this is what I've only realized in the past few years, Trevor. I was telling a young puppeteer at the beginning of their transition and they were playing with gender and their clothing and all of that stuff. And they were working in my studio and, as they were leaving that day, I said, you know, it just dawned on me, you have actually chosen the original non-binary performance art. I said, I've just realized as a performer, I've been non-binary since childhood because I have been the witch and Rapunzel and the leading man and the wolf and the three pigs. And I realized because we didn't have those words or those conversations back then, yeah. but I realized that was a huge part of it. It was not me being stuck in this body or this identity. It was limitless ways to play myself. And I love that. I, wow. It is so interesting because as an art form, you know, it's like performance and some people go into the theater to, you know, adopt these personas or whatever, but you are still, like you said, stuck in your or whatever physical body you have at the time. So with puppets, especially with what you do, you get to create the avatar. Yeah. There's so much control. And my my love of text and like my influences are everything from Shakespeare right down to those body carry-on movies from the 60s in England, 50s and 60s. So I'm this weird amalgam of British and American pop culture and traditional craft and puppetry is, was a great place to put it all. And yeah. that same year, when I was seven, The Sound of Music came out. And the Lonely Goat Herd sequence was done by the man <laughs> in the book. It was the Bill Baird marionettes. Oh, my gosh. 
And so I not only fell in love with the Bill Baird marionettes, I blame Julie Andrews for making me queer because suddenly, Get in line. you know, a lot of a lot of people have their Streisand thing, but I'm a Julie Andrews boy. And so fast forward, I would write Bill Baird every three years from the age of seven. I would write him and say, I will leave my family and move to New York. Please hire me. And I did that again when I was 10 and when I was 14 and he never replied. And I was in theater school and I was hating it. And I wrote him a letter quoting the last line of his book where he says it's our responsibility to train the next generation and i quoted him i said get me out of here please 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 and then i was asked to leave theater school so anyway i saved up some money and went went to moscow to a international puppet festival when i was 18 and i met bill baird in moscow and he said to me i've been trying to find your address i've been meaning to get in touch with you he said are you what? stopping stopping in new york on your way back home to canada i said yeah we have three days in new york i've never been there it's gonna be great he said well come by and audition he had a permanent equity theater in greenwich village and on my 19th birthday i went and he hired me what what an epic what a story Oh my God. And fast forward, fast forward many years later when I'm already doing my own work. And one of, one of my first big significant shows was called Tinka's New Dress. And we got booked to do it in Sag Harbor, uh, New York, which mm. is the Hamptons, mm. at a theater that was started and run by Julie Andrews' daughter. So as I'm packing to leave, I noticed my framed lobby card from the original Sound of Music release of Maria Von Trapp and the children working those puppets in the Lonely Goat Herd. And I thought, huh. So I slipped it out of the frame, threw it in my luggage one night. You stole it? No, it was mine. Oh, I, I, oh, I got it. it. I got since it. I was, no, yeah, yeah, I, I see. It, it was mine. So it was in my, in my office. And I stuck it in my luggage. And one night, Julie Andrews came to the show. Oh, my God. And she came into the dressing room and we talked about the lonely goat herd. And I was literally six inches away from her. And I thought, now, Ronnie, now. And I said, Miss Andrews, would you come into my dressing room just for a minute? And she said, oh, certainly. And we go in and I hold up the lobby card and I said, would you please sign this for me? And she said, oh, good Lord, get out. And 10 minutes later, she came out and she had left the most beautiful inscription on that lobby card, which is now hung in the studio over the brooms. So full circle. Oh my God. And you're going to have to explain for some of our listeners, what is a lobby card? It's not a program. A lobby card was um, heavy quality cardboard photos that were hung in movie theaters of shots from the upcoming movie or the current movie. And they okay. have the name of the movie printed on the bottom. And so, yeah. That's what a lobby card was. That tracks. Was this pre-Victor Victoria for Julie? No, it was right after the botched surgery. Oh, and, oh the surgery. Ugh. And we were, we were um, informed, me and my company, when we got to the theater, if anyone approaches us asking us if we've seen or know Ms. Andrews, we say nothing. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I did see Ms. Andrews? Because the National Enquirer and all the tabloids were in town sniffing around. Oh, um, the poor woman. 
Yeah, so it was lovely to meet her and uh, get that signed. And so that's such a full circle thing of Bill Baird marionettes in the sound in the book in the Sound of Music. So anyway, I I, love I don't know if I don't know if that's what made me queer, but it certainly didn't stop me from being queer. You know, I mean, listen, something was conspiring with something because that's just like what a narrative. You had no chance. I did. Thank goodness. Thank goodness I did. <laughs> I know. Thank God. But. I do think long and hard about this because like so many people, you're told you're queer long before you know what that means. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, as a little boy, I gave a Valentine card to my fifth grade substitute teacher. And and I thought that was just so natural. And it was, what if I married him someday? The thought of marrying a man back then was as fantastic as any fairy tale you could invent you know yeah. none of us saw that coming but it wasn't sexual i i wasn't at an age yet where any of that had come into play it was right. more captain von trapp and maria in the sound of music it was gushy romance that's right because all those relationships were pretty sexless anyway so it was just like i just yeah. you know i want to be close to you and spend time with you yeah and uh it was always there i i there was no one defining moment there were you know, I could I could go on and I don't really think I need to. Well, I'm actually going to dial you back to this teacher. I want to know a little bit more about this teacher. So like what was he a classroom teacher? Did he specialize in the subject? And what was that? What do you remember anything about him? He was a substitute. He was the brother of one of my main teachers. And mm. um, they were British, but lived in Canada. And he was famous. He was a mountain climber. And he had gone on many expeditions, but he also had a teaching degree and was there either visiting his, I think he was visiting his sister for a year or something in my hometown. And that sounds pretty queer. You may have had a shot. Yeah. Well, no, no I've Googled him since, but, um, <laughs> you know, and he's still alive, which is amazing. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was just. Well, he was a movie star, you know, he was handsome. He was just, yeah. and he had a British accent. So Ooh. I, how could I resist, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, come on. In a mountaineer? Yeah. And those were probably back in the days when it was like, I mean, it's a dangerous thing now, but you see sometimes slightly older footage of mountaineers and it's just like them in a rope in an ice pick. Yeah. Oh my God, Ooh. I just made another connection to the sound of music. Climb every mountain. I never heard of that. You're right, that, that makes sense. That was where the goat we heard was in the mountains too. <laughs> It all. This is. I'm picturing the like the the police board behind you with all the red strings going from the photos, and they all go back to Sound of Music. You made me queer. You made me queer. We'll be right back. And now back to more. You made me queer. You made me queer. You know, and it was around that time. I think it was sixth grade. The next year, mm -hmm. um, we would get. Um, we would get a big city newspaper every morning, not the local one. And um, mm -hmm. one morning, my dad came into my bedroom. I was still in bed and just put the newspaper on my bed with a plunk and closed the door. And the cover story was about Christine Jorgensen, who had gotten a sex change, I think, in the early 1950s. It was the first sort of famous and public trans person. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know why there was an article in in the 60s. It would have been in the 70s by now about Christine Jorgensen, but it was a cover story. And I think my father put that there in a really kind of awkward, unknowing way of maybe this is what Ronnie wants to become. 
Oh, wow. There was no commentary. There was no editorializing and there was no further discussion about it. But I read that and it was fascinating, of course, yeah. but I thought, wow, that's so great. But that's a big step. Yeah. But I knew that wasn't what I wanted, but that's not me. Hmm. Me, Ronnie, likes men. And yeah. I like being a man too. I've always liked being a man. Those, those complicated, sweet, but complicated moments when you see someone trying to kind of reach across the divide and say, I have no idea how to help you through this. I, there's no template for it. There's no reference, but, but maybe this, there's a sweet heart to that. Yeah. Well, and there's no, you know, I, I said earlier, I came out of the box ready to be queer, you know, yeah. just, yeah plug it in and recharge it once in a while. But there <laughs> there was no instruction manual in that box for the new owners. And there was sure. no guide to uh, care and grooming of your queer child. <laughs> and my dad was a jock. He played hockey. He tried out for the Olympic team. My dad was that guy. And he got someone who wasn't interested in any of that. And so I, I look at so many parents and think, well, I think part of what you should be doing is just wait and watch and see what they want to tell you, right? Totally. Yeah, like, I mean, you see all this conversation about how old do kids have to be before they should be allowed to transition? When do they know? And what if they're wrong? And what if they're confused? And like, one thing that I've constantly hear from everyone I've talked to is like, we know who we are. And really, yeah. the only impediment is the world around us telling us, are you sure? Or maybe you're not. Yeah. You just have to listen. Yeah. And then buy us the dolls and the puppets we want. <laughs> exactly. Or or let us just sit in our rooms and make them or yes. fantasize about them or whatever, you know. So yeah. It's 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 never an easy journey and it it's never the same journey. Hmm. And so that's again, even in our community, Trevor, you know, there are so many factions. And you have to understand that uh, from my generation, before AIDS. Gay men and lesbians really did not interact except a few of us hmm. who would go to MCC dances and potlucks. And then you would see Bev and Tanya having the first dance and it was sweet. <laughs> but it, if you went into bar culture, it was separated and it yeah. was misogynist. And what really changed that was when AIDS hit is so many women in our community came mm -hmm. forth to organize, to protest, to donate blood. And that is the first time I think a lot of queer men actually got to know lesbians and trans people other than just giving them money at drag shows. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. suddenly we saw how truly in this we are together. And so I've always, you know, before this version of my career, I would do interstitial performances at drag shows. You know, drag queens would invite me to do something in between their sets. Or mm -hmm. I once hosted the Mr. Pacific Northwest Leather Competition as the MC and puppeteer. I would take all those really silly queer gigs that nobody else wanted to do because they didn't want to be that public about it. But I got to know my community really well. And I have to say, I the affection I feel for that community and sometimes from that community is yeah you know in those hard times when it is family of choice when you realize mm -hmm. i do belong to something i do yeah. which is so beautiful and we have to belong to it now again more than ever i think because of this 
rise of hatred and the spread of disinformation that we really need all arms linked together on this you know whether or not i understand someone's transition or their leather fetishism or it doesn't mean i have to understand it just means yeah, exactly. we're all in this together right yeah and it's like you said too about you know sometimes it's willing to just ask a question and be quiet or not even ask the question just kind of you know step to the back of the room and not participate because i can tell you a lot of these gen z kids coming up now they don't have to be taught this stuff they get uh, nine bi binary identities they get being trans they get being pansexual it just makes sense for them and so yeah that's you know that's one of the silver linings of mortality I think is that we you know older folks don't have to get it because uh, <laughs> we're gonna kick it and then the next generation is just gonna hopefully bring sort of a, a more actualized hopefully situation because it's like you said too, women and lesbians and trans folks really helped gay men through that crisis and then gay men were the first one sort of granted rights and then they just turfed all the women and trans people right away and said okay we can get married now or we can have jobs so like thanks for the help goodbye yeah yeah and you know you bring in the diversity and inclusivity and people of color and all of those issues too yeah. Um, and racism in the queer community. So yeah. we do have a lot of mindful work to do within our separate communities and our big community. But I think job number one has to be, and I feel this more every day, unfortunately, it's like accelerating that there is such, well, you know what, it, it's, it's what happened in Nazi Germany. It's like if you point at one group and say, they're the problem, if we got rid of them, we'd all be fine. It's a classic representation of people who have no economic or social reform policies. So just identify an enemy yep. and then you can smokescreen everybody. Exactly. And we're being used as this huge smokescreen because Faye and Fluffy are not the, the <laughs> danger to conservative Christian families at all. Isn't you know? it insane? Drag yeah. story time should be mandatory, I think. 100%. Yeah, it's just a smoke and mirrors, and, you know, to just pass all this all this uh, distract really from what's actually happening or, you know, the climate change or the rights and freedoms we're losing every day or the policies that are getting passed while we're all shouting at a drag brunch. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm hoping that people are wising up to it. And uh, worst case scenario, this has happened before and uh, we overcame it and we'll do it again. And all it takes is beautiful bright lights like you who aren't afraid to uh, be creative and invent something new well and i think uh, uh, this is not me patting myself on the back at all I think although you are physically patting us. yourself on the back i am Podcast not listeners can't see this. i am <laughs> not doing that i'm eating a ham sandwich and i'm not doing that either um you know it's interesting that i have been so queer in my work when initially and consistently i would say 90 percent of my audiences over 46 years have been straight people, straight theater going general public. And they keep coming back for more to hear this queer perspective. And it's obviously a big homo on stage with his puppets. There's no denying that. And I've never tried to deny that, but I never made a clear decision that I was going to be a queer performer. I just made my own work mm. for a marketplace that didn't exist and created that marketplace. And now I, I look at it and, you know, I've had a couple of young puppeteers in the last 
couple years say, God, you are such a queero. You are such a, that is a shamelessly queer performance. And I go, was it? And they're like, Ronnie, come on. It was so gay. And I went, really? <laughs> you know, then why do all these straight people keep coming to the work? So that's a great mystery to me that, hmm. that I can't teach. I can just, I, I think I'm a pretty darn good teacher. And I say I'm not a good teacher because I hate teaching. So that's the difference. I'm actually a really good teacher. I'm yeah, a better yeah. mentor one-on-one. -on -one. But I think I've always realized that rather than teach, I'm a really good front man for puppetry because I wow. go out and do it. And I've constantly performed. And a lot of young puppeteers have seen my work and gone, hey, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And then they get intrigued by puppetry. So I'm a good front man for puppetry. I don't know if I, well, I know I don't represent the whole of the craft. I just represent my own storytelling, but I think there's something so universal in a specific story, if that makes any sense. And so if we all just tell our stories, it increases the visibility of how universal we are. Absolutely, it does. I think work from any marginalized folks, queer folks included, has, I think one of the gifts of being a marginalized person is that you are forced into the fringes, whether you like it or not, and you you find out who you are there. And so there's like a, a familiarity with transgression in a way that I think a lot of normie folks or folks who are haven't had a reason to wander outside of the mainstream find completely befuddling and really tantalizing. And I think you give them, as a queer artist, permission to taste that freedom. You know what? Yes. And I for many, many years, Trevor thought I was on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And what I've realized more and more and more is that most people feel that way. Yeah. So what the hell are we all looking at? We're all looking at some <laughs> void instead of looking at ourselves or each other. And I think, you know, I, I do know my work and the kind of work I do and it's character and text driven those things, those characters and those instruments in my hand exist only to be those characters. Hmm. So it's a freedom not only for me as a performer, it's a freedom for the audience to look at these iconic little vessel vessels and not have to think, oh, I saw them at Stratford last year or they were in a TV series or, oh, I, I know someone who slept with that character actor. <laughs> I mean, no kink shaming, but... No, but those characters exist on stage <laughs> for the audience to give the breath to. I jiggle them wow. and I speak for them, but that moment of suspension of disbelief is when the audience starts breathing for those characters. So, And I'm not being woo-woo. There are techniques to make that happen, actually, that I employ every night. Yeah. But when it happens, it is this most beautiful sense of community where, well, what, what did we talk about throughout this whole thing? Where they listen. Yeah. to a character telling a story and even though it's so specific to the character there are those moments of universality and the i know quality and that's what connects us in storytelling is i can tell you a story but some part of it you'll go oh i know that feeling i yeah. know that feeling yeah. and we have you know like a piano has 88 keys and no end of compositions have come from 88 keys we have the same desires and foibles you know we all want to be loved we've all been disappointed and hurt we've all been horny we've all been jealous we've all been angry so those are stock emotional things that i play into 
that create a community. And it's interesting that the work has become actually queerer, mm. um, <laughs> oddly, and it's reaching an even bigger audience now. And I notice in the audiences now, there is no demographic. I actually am a publicist nightmare because you can't just target. <laughs> totally. You know, I, I used to say to the publicist uh, theaters, don't do a full page ads in the queer magazines because the tan homosexuals are going to come, will come. Yeah. Um, but now, now it's across the board. Any given night in Vancouver, for example, or here, there are people fully in drag there are leather daddies there are suburbanites there are mm -hmm. elderly people there are theater students there are young kids there are different diversities of the melatonin in the room finally and mm -hmm. so gosh i love that because it means i get to talk to a whole community who finds their way into the theater well that's so exciting because it, i'm really struck by that idea that the the puppets like you said, they are not from something else. They're completely unique in that way. And it allows them also the fact that they're inanimate and you are sort of a force behind them, but not the thing. They get to become this perfect cipher for anything or for anyone. And with all the things we're fighting about now and will be fighting about soon, I'm sure yeah. that's one place we can all kind of sit and see ourselves. Maybe I don't you're making me feel very mystical, Ronnie. I have a really lovely story that happened this year, Trevor. So, you know, like I say, most of my work is written uh, text-based work. But uh, 11 years ago, I made this stupid show called The Daisy Theater that I improvised for two hours every night. And I said to my agent all those years ago, don't push this, don't book this. It's a one-off. <laughs> and it's been on the road ever since. It's gone oh. all over the world. It's it's played the same theaters three to five times in some cities. It has a huge loyal audience and so i thought as a one-off oh let's do christmas carol as an improvised thing with these characters because i had a good title little dickens it'll sell and that was <laughs> supposed to be a one-off and it's become an annual thing i'll be doing it to the day i die every december mm -hmm. um thank god and so during during the pandemic i was building three or four new shows and the last one on the list was a thing called little willie which is the daisy theater cast takes on shakespeare and most presenters said, could you do the sad play about the old man and his dog later? Because that's not a really good way to get people back in the theater after a <laughs> sure. pandemic. Yeah. Could you bring us the Daisy Theater? And I begrudgingly said, okay, I'll do Little Willie. And I tell you, I did a seven city tour starting in January to May. And it was like a comeback tour. People were fantastic. But the one of my main characters is Schnitzel, who is a little fairy without wings. And I have never really uh, prescribed a gender to Schnitzel, although I always referred to Schnitzel as he. Mm. But most audience members in the writing or even some critics will refer to Schnitzel as she. Some will say he. And I never, I used to correct people in the first couple of years going, no, Schnitzel's a he. Mm -hmm. And then I just stopped with that. And so there's a scene in Little Willie where they're taking on Romeo and Juliet. And every, all the old divas in the company are vying for the role of Juliet. And we have a marionette of Shakespeare who appears. And so it's all silly and dirty and funny. And Schnitzel appears and has a chat with Shakespeare and says, I would like to do the balcony scene between Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. And Shakespeare says, well, which part? And he said, both. What do you mean both? He's good. Because I feel both parts and I can do it. Mm -hmm. And Schnitzel runs off stage and comes back in. And my costumer, Kim, 
and I came up with a, a fairy costume for schnitzel, but it's in pink, blue, and white. It is the color of the trans flags. Yes. And schnitzel comes out and does the opening lines of Romeo for the balcony scene. And then we go into schnitzel doing Juliet in the balcony scene. And people loved it. I'm not saying queer people loved it. Everybody yeah. loved it. And I thought, well, this is such a natural way to do that, is just have a character who isn't on any sort of binary or gender scale come out and say, I feel both of those roles, and why can't I do them both, right? Right. Which is a, a lovely bookend near the end of our chat, I'm sure, of going uh -huh. back to why I love this craft, is that I wasn't stuck having to choose in theater school, you know, they they sat me down and said, you'll never be the leading man, Ronnie. You're always going to be the goofy best friend of the leading man. And you can play five years younger or five years older, and you better brush up on your tap dancing. <laughs> and I was asked to leave theater school because I told the dean of fine arts to go fuck himself. Yay. Because I'd already Applause. been all of these characters, you know? Yes. And yes. so it's a full circle of having schnitzel come out. When five years ago, I wasn't even sure of the discussion or understanding where we are as a community with all of these beautiful, young, legendary children just mm. identifying themselves in a myriad of ways. Well, fast forward, Schnitzel walks out and plays both parts. And people who understood the colors in the costume gasped. Yeah. Not everybody did, but it was a wink to the, those who knew. And, and I'm... I'm happy that that happened um, and that I was able to do that just as a silly old puppeteer doing a puppet show. I mean, how modest, but absolutely, this it's such power, such surprising and punk power, which is so inspiring. Maybe, maybe that's the answer. Maybe what we need is we'll all pool our money together, we can get you all the materials you need, and we'll just send you on sort of a tour across the world to everywhere people can't just kind of settle down and see eye to eye and you, you just make it happen. We'll give you a week in each country. Is that okay? <laughs> Fine. Okay. But I, okay. I'll take Patricia Wilson as my bodyguard if you don't mind. <laughs> Absolutely not. That, that should be fine. Uh, now listen, Ronnie, as you've said, unfortunately, our time is running out. I could talk to you forever. You are a magician. But I'm sure you have other things to do. You have books to organize and a dog to tend to. So before I let you go, would you like to play a very fast game? Oh, dear. All right. Let's go. <laughs> okay. I saw your entire body visibly tense. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This game is very easy. This game is called Queer, Queerer, Queerist. Queerer, Queerist. Okay. I'm going to give you three things. Your job is to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. Okay. I have <laughs> still full grip. I have chosen three things that I think will be right in your wheelhouse so you don't have to worry. Okay. Thing number one. In any incarnation, in any version, Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. Thing number two. Sherry Lewis's Lamb Chop. Mm-hmm. Thing number three. Topo Gigio. Remember Topo Gigio? Oh, 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 this is so hard. Oh, this is so hard. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is so hard. Least queer to most queer and why? I would say Sherry, um, 
on the least one, even though it had all of that stuff we just talked about, you know? Yeah, yeah. What is Lamb Chop? Was Lamb Chop a little girl or a little boy? I think sometimes referred to as a little girl, but it didn't matter. It's like Casey and Finnegan were never gendered. Yes. The puppeteer of Casey and Finnegan was adamant that Casey never has a gender. So nice. as much as I love Sherry Lewis, and I really believe Sherry Lewis is one of the great puppeteers of all time, and performers. Oh yeah. I'm going to put Sherry in the least and I would put Topo in the middle. Oh. I would put Topo in the middle uh, just because again it was such mass culture sweetness. It was popular and mm. loved by everybody. Even Ed Sullivan was tender to that brilliant little puppet. <laughs> yeah and to come to think of it Topo was so gay. <laughs> oh yes give me good night eddie you know come on that's a, a little boy mouse asking for a good night kiss but again was that flirty it's or, like you and the substitute teacher was that queer or was that just tender was that see here's the thing i have so many friends who say oh my child's gay and i'm like your child's seven but he's wearing a skirt i'm like he's playing a hundred percent it's fine don't put that that's their story to tell you so maybe topo was just being a sweet little boy there you go i will say pinocchio personally is the queerest for me because as you don't know this over there in the other books that aren't puppetry mm -hmm. books there's probably about 20 25 different volumes of pinocchio which i've also collected for years wow and i've done a lot of reading about pinocchio and how pinocchio was re-edited throughout the 20th century to serve educators needs and make pinocchio a bad boy oh. when i think at the heart of it for me Pinocchio is one of those journey stories like the Wizard of Oz where Pinocchio is wanting to be a real boy. Mm. And so there's something about that that always struck me as the queer journey, whatever that is. Right. 100% you're right. Thinking about it that way, like wanting to have, oh, that's my dog going bananas. Um, yes, that all, I'm not going to put words on that because I think you said it so perfectly. It's it's just it's just trying to be your authentic self and Pinocchio felt alive but was stuck being a puppet. Maybe I'm over reading into it, but that to me is the magic of the story. And at the end of the story, it's love and forgiveness that allows Pinocchio to be real. So in everything we've talked about in this conversation, we need that love and we need that forgiveness for people to actually be their authentic selves. Yes, yes, I love that. That's all it takes. It's so simple. Don't we all just want to be real? Wasn't uh Yeah. What's the song from Paris is Burning? To be real? Who sings that? Anyway. Oh, I've got it on my playlist, but I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you do. Maybe it was about Pinocchio. <laughs> Maybe it was about all of us. Maybe <laughs> you know, well, and that scene where Pinocchio goes to the island of the lost boys or whatever it is and Oh yeah, the dark all, middle, that story. They're all drinking and carrying on. It's just like, well, that's our first gay bar you ever walk but into 100%, ever. 100%. Right? Pinocchio so, just chill, have a vodka tonic, you're going to be fine. Yeah, and thank you Sherry Lewis for being a great ally and a great inspiration and to uh, Maria, who who made Topo Gijo for creating something so beautiful, but I got to say, Carlo Collodi with Pinocchio, you you kind of gave me a template there as as a, yeah. as a little queer puppet boy. A hundred percent. And I will check because this is a very academic test. I will check the rubric. Yes, yes, yes. Congratulations, Ronnie. One hundred percent. You are in fact a queer person. Thank you. 
Oh my God, I, I, it's too late to, to change jobs now. <laughs> I know. Let everyone know, though, the results are in. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are a living national treasure. And I was very queer when this conversation started. And talking to you, Ronnie, has made me queerer than ever. My work here is done. Go forth and be gay. <laughs> Praise be. Praise be. I'll see you at the Island of Lost Boys. All right, baby. Thank you. That is our show. Do you love Ronnie more than ever? Because I'll tell you what, I sure do. You can email me at youmademequeer at gmail.com. You're running out of chances. It's our final season. And if you got a bone to pick, start picking. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show. It makes us popular. And what could be more important? And... That is our show. Cue credits. You Made Me Queer is created and produced by me, Trevor Campbell. Our editor is Carlo Castillo. Our theme song is by Critty. For more for music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at You Made Me Queer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every other Thursday. This one was a little late. Don't tell my mom. And from the bottom of my big bent heart, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.